what happened with with COVID was a stark example of what we don't want, right? We don't want to solve environmental problems by shutting down societies because the, the pain is too is too big. So the only real practical way forward is to invest in technology. And this is what we're doing. Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit apertureHub.co. Today, your host, Ben Robinson, is speaking with Luciano Diana, Senior Investment Manager at Pictay, one of the leading independent wealth and asset managers. Before running Pictay's Global Environmental Opportunities Fund, Luciano headed up Morgan Stanley's London-based clean energy sell-side research team. He holds an MBA from INSEAD. On today's episode, he and Ben discuss, should government stimulus packages be conditional on companies investing in energy efficiency? Why plant-based products are a space that you need to be paying attention to? why we should be bullish about the ability for market forces to solve climate change and more. Enjoy the show. So Luciana, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Maybe we could start by you telling us how you got into environmental investing. Sure. Hi, Ben. I got into clean tech renewables research when I was at Morgan Stanley back in uh, 2005. And uh, that was uh, because uh, I was very interested in the wind sector, the solar sector. I was part of a mid-cap uh, team and nobody was really covering those stocks. So, so I carved out uh, uh, a small um, list of, of companies to, to research. And then uh, a few years later, when I joined Pictay, I started uh, managing the Clean Energy Fund for, for a few years. When did you say that was that you started to look at it at Morgan Stanley? Uh, in 2005. Even as recently as 2005, there wasn't really much kind of investor interest or coverage of clean tech. Uh, there were just a few mid-cap names, uh, definitely no large caps that they were involved in uh, in, in renewals. And uh, yes, it was uh, a bit of a cottage uh, cottage industry at the time. I also covered uh, things like biofuels. You know, a lot of companies that actually don't exist anymore. I did a big piece uh, on the carbon trading market that started around the, that time, the European Emission Trading Scheme, the carbon offsets, all, all that stuff. And, and so it was it was very interesting work. I spent most of my time as an analyst to educate investors on, on industries, uh, in fact, as much as on, on individual stocks. So it was, uh, in fact, it was quite a lot of fun. Just looking at the kind of, you know, the investment kind of prospectus, which I downloaded from the Pictay website. One of the things it says, it says, with our global environmental opportunities strategy, investors can help safeguard the planet while retaining the prospects of long-term outperformance. Like, How much of a paradox is it to think that, you know, you can get a sustained rate of return from economic growth at the same time as you can protect the environment? That is the key reason why this fund is having success and uh, in general investments into uh, ESG funds uh, with an environmental tilt are, are growing because we are able uh, to get both objectives of the financial return and also the, the environmental impact. And the key to that is that also the definition of what is environmental has broadened um, a lot since my days in 2005. So back then, the 
the view was quite narrow, solar, uh, solar energy, wind energy, and, and those are part of the solution, but they're just one of many types of technologies that you can that you can adopt to make an impact. Today, the way that we define an environmental investment is anything that can improve the natural resource efficiency or address pollution. And that then ranges from uh, energy efficiency to, to water technologies, uh, to waste management, uh, to software companies that are, are addressing the digitalization of, of manufacturing. So it's a very broad investment theme. And so this diversification is, is very important for performance. So that's, uh, that's the, that's the magic, you know, the magic formula for, for our investors because we have an objective to, to outperform global equities by three, four percent per year over an economic cycle. So we're not uh, aiming to to get 10, 20 percent plus. Uh, volatility for, for the fund is uh, roughly in line with that of global markets. And then we also have a positive impact. So you, you sort of alluded to it there when you said that when you when you listed the kinds of investments that you could make. But you know, how broad is our environmental products and services like for example could you invest in tesla could you invest in zoom you know what is what is the you know what are the boundaries exactly of of, of environmental products and services yes so the definition is relatively broad and uh, there is one framework that uh, we use for for our investment universe it's a, it's a scientific framework um, that was developed in uh, 2009. In fact, it was published in the Nature, Nature magazine back then by a group of scientists coordinated by the Stockholm Resilience Center. And that tells us that there's nine environmental domains that really matter. Climate change is one of them, but also biodiversity is there, the water cycle is there, chemical pollution is there, and others. And each one of these domains has, has a boundary. The scientists are telling us more or less where the boundary is, and the, the economy needs to stay within the boundaries to avoid a nonlinear and unpredictable change. So we, first of all, look for businesses that stay within the boundaries to begin with. That means that have a low environmental footprint. Uh, and that means that they are not predicated on overconsumption of natural resources to exist. That's the first step. And the second step is that we look for the solution providers among them. So it's not enough just to have a low environmental footprint. Like, for example, maybe a healthcare, healthcare company could, could have a low environmental footprint. But we also look for uh, solution providers for environment. So any solution, again, that addresses resource efficiency or pollution control. And if we find a company, a business that satisfies both of these conditions and that has sufficiently high proportion of its revenues in this in this uh, domain, then, then we consider that eligible for our universe. And in the end, we end up with 400 companies, which doesn't seem much, uh, but 400 companies that have at least 20% of their sales in some kind of environmental solution globally. And these are listed equities, by the way. So this is a clearly a listed equities fund. And, and then, so within that, you find many technologies. You mentioned Tesla, uh, for sure. Electric cars are there. Volkswagen is not, although uh, BMW is not, because uh, they don't do, at least today, enough electric cars. They still have a, a big legacy in combustion engines. 
Uh, you mentioned Zoom. Um, Zoom is part of the uh, theoretical universe, like Citrix, for example, any solution for remote working, because remote working has a, a, a positive impact, uh, avoiding uh, avoiding uh, commuting and, and all that. And then, for example, I mentioned before, software. Software is very important for us when it's uh, uh, linked to an engineering application. We've invested in uh, virtualization software for a number of years. Um, we've invested in building information management software, things like uh, companies like ANSYS and Autodesk. They would do, they really bring digitalization into the manufacturing, into the construction sector. And anytime that you digitize uh, a process, y- you have some kind of raw material efficiency there. Have you seen? A change in the kinds of investors that invest in your funds. You know, in the back when you started it, was it, you know, I could imagine it was largely the investor base largely consisted of either funds or individuals that were interested in ESG. Would you say it's kind of gone way more mainstream now? Absolutely. So it, it has, it is becoming more mainstream. So the fund was repositioned in 2014. So that uh, is, is the key date, September 2014. Today, we have roughly $3.5 billion at the management. Uh, mostly, it's retail and wholesale clients. We have a large uh, distributors within private wealth management organizations, fund selectors, and some institutional uh, clients as well, such as family offices and, and pension funds. So definitely uh, more mainstream and not necessarily clients that want to to use this as a, as a satellite approach to their equity allocation, but more and more uh, as just an approach to global equities. You know, I can imagine that doing what you do sort of marries, you know, your professional interest with your personal interest, right? In the sense that, you know, we're all affected by climate change. And I think, you know, you're somebody who's very interested in, in it in, in a personal capacity as well. Would you say in general you think things are moving fast enough? They are not moving fast enough because uh, the, the challenges that we have in terms of the damage we've done to the environment and you know things like a concentration of CO2, the amount of plastic that we that we throw into the oceans, those are huge challenges. So, so we can never go fast enough. But what has changed and is encouraging and is very important for, for our theme is that the awareness on these issues has stepped up dramatically. Uh, over the years. So, so when we started, we, we thought that this would happen. Uh, we thought that young people would start to uh, also uh, get angry and, and complain about the state of affairs and how the older generation is, is treating things. And Greta Thunberg happened. So for us, it was not it's not really a coincidence. It was bound to happen at some point. That's very encouraging. We've seen how consumer preferences are changing. We've seen how the private sector is investing. And all of this has to do with more information, more awareness. So that's the key word for us. We haven't yet reached a kind of inflection point, have we, where all these kind of nascent trends, you know, growing sort of consumer act- activism, growing corporate kind of re- responsibility, where they start to sort of compound. Would you argue we haven't reached that point yet? They are converging. I'm not sure about the compounding, uh, but they're definitely converging. So they're they're getting aligned. In most regions of the world, we, we see a very good alignment. I would uh, caveat that the United States is, is a, is a special case because of the, the current president and his policy towards environmental protection. That's the only situation where policy is going backwards instead of forward. But even there, 
if we take a long-term view, we think that uh, eventually the direction will turn 180 degrees, and so the alignment will be pretty um, consistent across the regions. And that's 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 powerful. I think there's a sense of urgency. I think uh, you might have questions later about COVID and uh, and the pandemic, and you know we have almost. Uh, um, Put entire economies to 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 a halt uh, for an emergency, which had um, the, the probability of, of being very severe in the short term. The hope is that we can mobilize also to address climate change and uh, to build more resilience in in the system. One of the challenges with climate change is that it's always there as a threat, but it's not kind of present in the same way as say the pandemic is right where it's constantly in the headlines it's like you know one day we hear about fire you know another day we hear about a drought but it's not kind of this all consuming you know headline grabbing issue that stays permanently on our consciousness so do you think that's one of the issues which is you know on the one hand you've got kind of fatigue because we hear about it so much but but conversely or paradoxically like it doesn't stay sufficiently in our consciousness that we're always reminded of it and always acting on it it's not there every day, but I would argue that in the last year or two, we've seen enough uh, shocking events uh, around the world to remind us um, about how how dire the situation could become if we don't act. Uh, so the Amazon fires, the, the bushfires in Australia, and uh, and so forth, and the hurricanes. What I also would add is that it's becoming more clear um, that uh, the climate. Uh, health, the state of the planet, and our health are interrelated. So more and more studies linking uh, air pollution with, with deaths in different cities. Uh, even with this pandemic, uh, there is uh, an element of, uh, of linkage there, you know, seeing that uh, uh, people that are weaker in, in their lungs, uh, they, they tend to be affected more gravely by, by pandemics. There's also the argument about climate change potentially uh, favoring the, the spread of diseases. So you know, all these linkages are, are, are emerging one by one. And I think the picture is getting clearer in, in people's minds. You, you mentioned it earlier, but, you know, in, in the sense that, that the pandemic has accelerated digitization, I guess it's, it's been helpful in, you know, accelerating energy efficiency. Yeah, so there's a couple of uh, dimensions there. One is the pandemic and the other one is the current oil price. Uh, maybe I yeah. can address both of them, but, but separately. So on the effect of, uh, of, of COVID, indeed, uh, we are accelerating some technology trends that we were already seeing, um, we were investing in, and we think that's going to be good, right? Because uh, ultimately, the environmental footprint of society might improve if we go in that direction. That's one thing. When it comes to energy efficiency, we think that it's going to continue, but then we have to also factor in the, the price of, of oil and the price of electricity and, and whether that's going to slow down investments in certain parts of the world for capacity in general. We know that renewables are taking share, for example, versus fossil fuels. But we also know that uh, due to the lower economic activity and, uh, and the pandemic, uh, the, the overall level of investments in the energy sector uh, has gone down by 20%. I think that there was a study from the EIA that was just uh, released uh, a day or two ago. So that, that has to do with a slower economy. 
and and the oil price is uh, just a symptom of a slower economy. So in the short term, it might not be the case that we're going to see an acceleration, but that in our opinion, is just a temporary effect. Again, when we do thematic investing, like like we do within our fund, we tend to look at the long term. So, so a one or two year time horizon is is too short term. We look at really three years and plus. And and if we look at three years and plus, then for sure, energy efficiency will continue to remain very important. Well, what you, what you touched on there is one of the biggest paradoxes, right, about the environmental movement, which is, you know, th- the almost like we have to continue to consume in in order to create the incentives to be efficient? Yes, that is a very deep and philosophical question about where is uh, society naturally going to towards. And, and human beings, uh, they, they need uh, to, to reach a better state. Uh, they need, they, they strive for, for better economic conditions. And, and therefore, you know, society moves in a certain way for, for more mobility, more, more dif- different types of consumption. What happened with, with COVID was a stark example of what we don't want, right? We don't want to solve environmental problems by shutting down societies because the, the pain, uh, is too, is too big. So the only real practical way forward is to invest in technology. And this is what we're doing is really to try and get technology to, to save the day realistically, not trying to, to look for, for moonshots that, that, that don't have any chance, economic chance of success, potentially changing our habits uh, a bit, but not to the point of sometimes I say going back to the caves. Uh, yep. humanity, the genie is out of the bottle. Uh, and so we cannot expect to, to leave the planet alone by shutting down our, our current society. It's almost like we need to create the demand to create the, you know, the profit incentives for entrepreneurs to come in and develop the technology that will save us. Yes. While demand has been temporarily kind of reduced because of COVID, is, it, is this the moment where do you think government should step in? Like, for example, should, you know, should stimulus packages be condition, conditional on, on, on companies investing in sort of, you know, energy efficiency, for example? Yes, yes. There's definitely uh, a great opportunity with uh, any crisis, and also in particular when there's huge amounts of money being being thrown at the economy. Um, not to put any conditionality would be would be really a shame. We are encouraged by what we are seeing in Europe for the moment. The 750 billion package, where a quarter of that seems to have some ties attached to it. We will see what happens in the United States. That there's also the potential for a huge green deal at some point in the future. And in China, definitely we're seeing the subsidies, you know, going in the right direction. What I would say though is that as investors, we don't want to overplay and over the role of governments, and we don't want to over rely on on those. Going back to the beginning of this conversation, when I was mentioning renewables back in 2005, uh, they were not yet ready as a technology. They needed a, a significant, significant amount of subsidies. And therefore, there was a huge volatility also in their businesses uh, when the subsidies were, were changed by governments. Uh, so that lesson as investors has to be always there in the background. And that's why when we talk about technologies such as software for resource efficiency, so digitization, these technologies make economic sense. And ultimately, 
they are adopted because of cost-saving reasons. So whether the economy is, is in a good state or in a bad state, companies always need to save money. I know you didn't want to talk about moonshots, but are there any sort of technologies that are not you know, broadly on people's radars that you think could be game changing, you know, things like carbon capture and, you know, technologies like that, what, you know, what's emerging that we should kind of be excited about? So the, the carbon capture is indeed the holy grail of, uh, of solving climate change, but it's still too, way too far, too far away for us to, to look at, uh, as, as investors in public equities. So we are, we're looking at the different initiatives, but the, the cost per ton uh, would, would require uh, a price of carbon that the governments are not ready to, to, to accept. What I find very interesting and that could have an equally important uh, um, contribution, not just to climate change, but to biodiversity and many other dimensions, is the plant-based uh, products. So it's an industry that pretty much didn't exist five years ago or even four years ago. Uh, and now it's out with, with some, some valuable, valid, valid products for, for consumers. Uh, so very, very small, but with a huge potential impact. So at the moment, there's only one company that attracts a lot of attention in the stock market, which is Beyond Meat, but there's others that, that are going to come into the market. So I think as investors, while it's early stages, while it's not really clear who's going to emerge as a winner, this is a space that I would definitely pay a lot of attention to. And is there a kind of geographical bias in terms of where the best companies and the best technologies emerging from? And is there, and if there is, is there any way to sort of to rationalize that? Is it, you know, is it because of, you know, government policy? Is it because of just these places have startup hubs? You know, what what does the geographical picture look like for for these technologies and companies? It's quite skewed towards North America. So if we look at our portfolio, for example, uh, it's uh, it's been maybe sixty percent, roughly, exposed to that that region uh, on average uh, over the last five years, uh, and then potentially 30% Europe and, and the rest uh, emerging markets. So the reason for that is is innovation. At the end of the day, American companies, they invest, uh, tend to invest more in R&D. They have products products that, that are really uh, leading edge, and uh, they tend to be also fairly well-managed businesses. Um, in Europe, we have technology, but not as much. So so clearly, on a relative basis, uh, less than the North America. And in a way, the, the disappointment, also personal disappointment at the moment, is that we are not able to find enough opportunities in emerging markets. So we know that there's a disconnect between the, the issues, uh, environmental issues that are, that are present there, and then the solution providers that domestically are, are developing solutions. That's a function of, again, on average, not having enough companies innovate. In China, there's, there's some great uh, internet businesses, but we haven't seen uh, great environmental businesses that are really doing technology. It's mostly companies that are applying technology that comes from elsewhere, maybe the West, and then deploying it, for example, for water management or, or renewable energy. So we're still lacking a bit uh, some some champs and the champions there. Should we put a price on the sea? We should uh, definitely 
think a lot more about the oceans than than we did in the past. David Attenborough's documentary has done wonders for the awareness on on plastic, and um, we should look uh, look after our our marine life much better. When it comes to awareness, uh, ocean acidification is is a big problem. I don't think that uh, most uh, people in the audience would 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 know about it. It's uh, also linked to uh, the agriculture. In intensive agricultural practices that we that we adopt uh, all over the world, basically, there's a link between how much we fertilize our fields uh, and and you know, when we over fertilize them, um, the nitrogen that is contained in the fertilizer is not absorbed by the soil, so ends up in the rivers that end up in the oceans, and that creates a what uh, what's called dead zones. So uh, zones where the algae, uh, there's algae bloom, algae uh, grow, absorb oxygen, they decompose, and they absorb oxygen in the process. So the ocean, as we get more and more of these dead zones around the world, uh, along the coast, actually is losing oxygen. And that has consequences on the types type, types of, of marine life and fish that that can thrive. Uh, so we get a lot of jellyfish in the Mediterranean, <laughs> for example. You know that's a very resistant type of fish, but, but maybe tuna uh, is 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 a species that needs more oxygen than others. So when you talk about the ocean, absolutely, we need to to make sure that we limit the amount of plastic that we throw in there. We need to limit the amount of nitrates that we we, we throw in there with uh, intensive agriculture, and uh, and also be a bit more responsible in the way we we, we fish. But I suppose what I was getting at was like in the same way as you know we're starting to put a price on carbon, you know, which should then get absorbed into the cost of production, and you know should somehow kind of internalize externalities. Like, is the answer to the problem of polluting in the ocean to put a price on? on the ocean or or is that do you, do you kind of think these things are too simplistic realistically it would be too too hard to to put in practice it's a, it's, it's the ultimate common good right so for, for countries so i think it'd be nice to think about a solution there what we need to to figure out is a way to get a carbon price first <laughs> i would be very happy if we did that and and we know that we had f- several challenges in Europe, and we, we haven't even started to think about a, US, a North American solution. Do you think that the pandemic's going to have a lasting change in terms of business life, so business travel, commuting? And then I think you told me earlier, right, that you'd, you'd been attending a virtual conference. How does, a, how does a virtual conference work in the investor world? Do you, you, know, do you still have one-on-one meetings with the cor- corporates, for example? I think there will be some structural changes, uh, not huge. So uh, I wouldn't go as far as saying that office work is dead, that we're all going to work from home. There'll be more flexibility. As you say, if I just look at my, my job, some type of travel might be avoided. This format of virtual conferences is absolutely a novelty in the investment management world, but it's working very well. I think the feedback from both companies and investors is, is very is very positive. Uh, basically, uh, yes, you, you can meet management on a one-on-one basis, on a small group basis, on on Zoom. These days, that's what uh, the default uh, platform is, really, and and get pretty much 
everything out of it as you would with with a physical meeting really that could take a, take away maybe a quarter of of our yearly travel because then we would still need to go and see clients we would still need to go and see companies on site because uh, there's lab visits or facilities visits obviously you cannot do them online but this type of corporate access could change so do you think that might be something that you know becomes a new habit or or new you know, a new um, function of, of, of investing, virtual? I think so. I th- and maybe not all of them. I don't think every single conference out there will turn into a virtual event. But I wouldn't be surprised if one out of three, for example, becomes uh, just virtual. That, 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 that's, going to be, that's going to be a positive. I wanted to ask you about the stock market in general, right? So, so between the 20... 20- Sorry, between the 19th of February and the 23rd of March, the S&P lost a third of its value, right? And since then, you know, with kind of no underlying improvement in the economy whatsoever, right, it's recovered. What do you put that down to? Is that, you know, is that a a bull trap? Is that, you know, is that just the market looking through the recession? How do you explain where the S&P is at right now? We had uh, the perfect V-shape uh, in, in the market, not in economy, but in the market, we had the V-shape. And, and ex-post, uh, we're, all, we're all geniuses and we all sound very smart. When you're in the thick of it, it's, it's a different story. So when, when the market started to correct, there were a huge number of question marks about the virus. And um, we don't do that anymore, but we were talking about parallels with the Spanish flu and so forth. So... So the panic on the way down, in my opinion, was was justified by simply a complete lack of information and the unprecedented nature of of the of the lockdowns. March twenty third was exposed to the point of peak peak panic. Why has the market rebounded since then? Clearly, um, the response from central banks has been unprecedented. So there was a technical factor there. There was l- literally money being pumped uh, into the markets to, to buy uh, assets, uh, equities, bonds, uh, and pretty much across the board. So I, uh, I kind of could follow the psychology of the market until just maybe a couple of weeks ago. And in the recent couple of weeks, I've also been a little bit puzzled by how far we've we've gone, um, because when we look at uh, the state of the different economies, we are definitely going. We're definitely seeing an improvement, uh, but I would say that in the US we still have a few question marks about where all the unemployed unemployed people are going to end up uh, if they're going to be all reabsorbed quickly or not. It's been pretty brutal over there. The money hasn't necessarily reached. Uh, unemployed people's pockets it maybe it's available on paper but not in their bank accounts so you know the effect on on the consumer economy in the united states is still a bit of a question mark so you could say that maybe we the market overreacted a little bit on the way down and now it's overreacting a little bit on the way up fact is that now we know the virus is not the spanish flu that it has uh, affected a certain part of the population so in its current form, it's unlikely to to affect you know children and adults in the same way as it affects uh, elderly people. And I would argue that also if we have a second wave, which is not yet a base case scenario, it's a risk, but it, 
it's not considered as a base case scenario. Our toolbox and our, our preparedness for that would be much higher than we had at the beginning. So even if we had a second wave, and this is what I'm getting my head around as well these days, or trying to get my head around, you know, are we going to have a second lockdown phase? I doubt it's going to be the case. The measures to to address that will be much more targeted. We will have testing, we will have tracing, we will have hopefully some um, pharmaceutical solutions there. So the worst is over and the markets uh, tend to really have a huge amount of relief when they kind of know that the worst is behind. And you don't think that uh, as kind of, you know, poor earnings are announced that somehow, you know, we'll have a couple of legs down in in the market? At this point, no. I think, I think that the second quarter earnings are going to be uh, awful, but the market will absolutely look look through them. And again, I'm trying to second guess what the, the average investor is thinking. But we're looking at 2021. If anything, I'm not I'm not so worried about what the companies are going to report. I'm maybe a little bit worried about things that were not present in uh, in the laundry list of of risks uh, two three months ago uh, that they are now. And one. Uh, is the geopolitical tension between China and the US, which has gone in the wrong direction. So if we had issues with the trade war in the past and the stock market reacted to that, then we reached a kind of a deal. Uh, If we were to go back in that agenda, if if the the deal fell off, uh, that's a risk that would worry me because that would be kind of a left field sort of sort of situation so uh, and then and then the other thing that i find interesting and and to a certain extent a bit sad is that you know, we we're, we're seeing the markets back at uh, all time highs but actually this is a time when the virus is hitting the population at large uh, the worst actually the last week uh, 10 days we've seen the the highest number of, of new cases since since the beginning, and this is, and the reason why the market doesn't necessarily care so much about that is because it's not really touching the developed markets. It's not touching the U.S. It's not touching Europe or China or Japan. And now it's about Latin America. It's about Africa, and the companies that are represented in the stock market don't have a huge exposure to that part. But from a human perspective, this is peak suffering. So to have the stock market uh, in an euphoric state when you know hundreds of thousands of people are, are getting hit for the first time by the virus is in a way a bit uh, a bit sad, but that's what it is in in the financial markets. Yeah, and, and I suppose another factor is I don't know if this is the right terminology or what, but this they call it decapitalization, right? Just this idea that you know companies have been buying back more and more of their stock, fewer and mm. fewer companies actually tend to list, such that you know. Like that divorce between sort of you know Main Street and Wall Street, and that divorce between developed world markets and the developing world has never been bigger, right? Because the stock market is less and less representative of of the average business. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that was part of the knee jerk reaction of several investors at the beginning of uh, 
of the drawdown in the markets. Uh, you, you know, when you read the news about restaurants and cruise lines and uh, airlines, uh, really uh, feeling the brunt of uh, of of the hit. You know, that's only six seven percent of. The, the market capitalization uh, in terms of employment is a much bigger sector. So maybe 20% or so if you put everything together, you know, the travel industry and, and tourism. But in terms of stock market capitalization, much less represented. We're starting to see data come out about how stock pickers did during that kind of, I don't know what we'd call it, right? The, the wobble, the correction. And yeah. basically stock pickers did no better than passive funds, right? And so I suppose the question as a fund manager I wanted to ask you was, you know, how much are you concerned about this sort of, you know, the, the rise and rise of, of passive investing in, you know, in ETFs and index funds? And you know, does that worry you or do you think there'll always be a role for, for the stock picker? The, the rise of passive investing is, is, is going to continue and uh, it's, it's a challenge for, for the industry. From a personal level, looking at, uh, at what I do and looking at what we do with, with Matic Investing and PICTE, I'm not concerned um, because uh, we don't see ETFs uh, uh, as being really uh, taking the majority of, uh, of the flows in, in our space. So when it comes to thematic investing, what we see is really the active approach is still successful. I don't have exact numbers, but I think uh, ETFs uh, don't represent more than 15% of, of our space. And the reason is that, so thematic investing is about looking for secular growth themes. It's looking for different types of innovation. Uh, so it requires a very dynamic approach uh, to identifying uh, opportunities. And uh, that's what uh, passive investing doesn't have uh, as much so so an etf tends to be more more rigid of course so you have a certain universe maybe once a year the whoever manages that product uh, uh, does a refresh of the universe and and then keeps those stocks uh, uh, maybe rebalances them every every quarter as an active investor there's a lot more dynamism and in times like uh, the drawdown well uh, the, the key is to be able to take advantage of these locations that these situations create. So an active manager can say, I've been wanting to buy that stock for a long time. Valuation was not uh, attractive enough. I have the opportunity and then I go for it. So obviously it's, it's always easier said than done, but, but that's the attractiveness of the active approach that you can take advantage of these situations. And do you think the other big opportunity is kind of like in your old hunting ground of like smaller mid-cap stocks? Because if MIFID is sort of increasing the kind of cost of, of, of covering smaller mid-cap stocks, it's almost, don't you think by almost by definition there, there's, there's kind of more arbitrage, there's more, you know, fewer people um, looking in detail at those stocks and therefore there's kind of, you know, that's the, that's, that's the place where you can uncover real value as, a, as an active investor. Absolutely. So that, that is definitely true. MIFID too has, uh, has caused a big, um, change in the industry. Uh, we are seeing, um, the need for more internal research. So we ourselves are beefing up our, our teams internally. And, uh, and of course we, we rely less on the sell side. So that's, uh, that's true. What I would have to say though, and if I look at also at my fund in particular, is that in order to tap into innovation, and environmental technology, for example, in our case, 
we don't feel that we didn't we need to necessarily look at very small companies in other words we have some um, holdings in companies that are already very well established maybe 20 30 40 billion of market capitalization so pretty large and they're the ones who are actually driving the most innovation in their respective space so finding opportunities in small caps is definitely uh, there uh, what I'm saying is that it's not an absolute necessity if you want to capture innovation. You can also get that from the slightly larger companies. Last question. Do you think that, because what you're saying is, you know, sometimes big is better, right? And and that's the, particularly the case where you, could, where you have, you know, demand and supply side economies of scale. But in general, do you think the market is good at pricing demand side economies of scale? You know, this idea that, you know, a product can get better and better the more people use it. And is that a possible area for, you know, for value arbitrage? It's a possibility. We don't have in our universe uh, the, the big platforms like like you would have. So Google and Facebook, that are not part of our universe. So we don't really have examples of, of that economic power. But what we do see is definitely that the economic uh, modes of certain companies uh, that have a technology, they tend to get stronger and stronger every year as these companies mop up smaller competitors and they acquire them. Because then you have the flywheel of, of good uh, free cash flow generation, which allows M&A to happen. And, and so we have a, quite a lot of those stories where, yeah, indeed, large is better because you sort of consolidated the, the industry around you. So, so yes, I think the answer to your question is, in our opinion, it pays to to focus on the innovators and, uh, and the companies that typically don't have a huge capital requirements to grow. That's also another thing. Even if capital is, uh, is very cheap these days, um, the, the strongest performers that we had, had have had that characteristic, high returns of capital, but with not a huge amount of capital employed. Fantastic. Can you leave us with one reason why we should be bullish about the environment and bullish about the ability for market forces to solve climate change? We should be bullish about the environment because um, we all want a, a better planet. And um, our children, they will demand us to, to do that for them. And their awareness uh, is, is going to be uh, at a different level to, to, to what we've experienced in our, in our, in our lives. That's number one. And number two is, is that we have the technologies. So we don't need to look for moonshots. Uh, we have technologies that can improve things and that can lead to performance. So as investors, we can expect to have portfolios that outperform the markets, have a positive impact and don't require us to take more volatility or, or can use as a, as a core component of our of our long-term uh, investments. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Ben. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about our Aperture community, visit aperturehub.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.